If you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We've been going in a series through the book of Matthew for a few months. We've made it through till chapter 5 through the Beatitudes. We've talked about being salt and light. We've talked about being persecuted and how persecution is a natural byproduct of faithfully living out the Beatitudes. And how if we are faithful to Christ, we will be persecuted. We talked about how we are the salt of the earth and how we are the light in this world to a dark world. And we get here in Matthew chapter 5 to verse 17. And verse, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20 today. And if I were to ask you to come up here and explain, how did Jesus fulfill the law? How many of us would have anything to say at all? I mean, this is something that is very kind of on the, in the shadows in some of our understanding of Jesus. We can understand a little bit about how Jesus fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament, but how did he fulfill the law? We can understand how he kept the law. He didn't break the law. But how exactly did he fulfill it? We're going to be talking about some of these questions today. In John, to introduce this, I want to read a little passage out of John chapter 5 and verse 39. It says, this is Jesus talking. He says to the religious people, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You believed Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Now isn't that interesting? Moses, in his writings, he wrote the Pentateuch. He wrote about Jesus Christ. Now... We're going to spend the rest of this 30 minutes reading through the entire Pentateuch and finding Jesus. Not really. <laughs> We're not actually going to be doing that. <laughs> but if you read the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you're going to read through there, and you're not going to find the name Jesus Christ anywhere in the Pentateuch. But here Jesus is saying, Moses wrote about me. And if you remember also, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to a couple of guys walking on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't know that it was Jesus. He was hiding himself from their understanding, from the recognition. And it says that Jesus started talking to them, and he was opening up to them all the scriptures, starting with Moses, all the things that were about him, about Jesus. He started with Moses. What in the world about Moses had to do with Jesus Christ? And this is just introductory. I'm not going to, these passages are not going to be my primary focus here. But I just want you to see in Scripture that it's not just the New Testament where we find Jesus Christ. We find Jesus all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, later on, as long as we don't run out of time anyway, we're going to find Jesus in Genesis. 
chapter 15. You can even find him in the first in the first chapter of Genesis, but we'll be looking at a passage in Genesis chapter 15. That Jesus is all over this passage, even though his name is not mentioned. I'm going to read these this Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 through 20. Let's read this together. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these least commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of things that we can discuss in this passage. And we, I might have to split this up into a couple different weeks, depending on how this goes. But we're going to start naturally with verse 17 here. Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Now, Jesus had already done a lot of things. He had gathered a following. He's been teaching some pretty um, amazing things, astonishing things, like no other teacher has taught up till this point. The people, from what he's already taught, and based off of some of the things that he's about to teach them, might think that Jesus is coming to kind of replace the old rabbinical systems with his new ways. He's going, he's, in, in fact, one of the reasons the people found reason to condemn Jesus is because he set himself up to be God and he started blaspheming the ways of Moses, the ways of the law. That's what they were claiming about Jesus. And Jesus is introducing his ministry here. I'm not coming to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not here to do away with the Old Testament teachings. That's not my purpose. And many of us today, maybe not here, hopefully not here, but many people today are claiming grace, grace as a reason to go and do whatever they want. God forgave me. Now I get to do what I want because I'm already secure in my eternal life as though salvation does away with the rest of Scripture, as though the doctrine of grace and mercy does away with the rest of the Scriptures. Jesus is saying, this is not the case. I did not come here to do away with Scripture by what I'm about to do. That's not my purpose. I've come to fulfill. But we, need to, we need to see here, <clears throat> excuse me, now, this is significant because Jesus, in this statement, is showing great humility before the Word. He's already been saying great things, profound things that the people haven't really heard taught before. He's going to keep doing so, and he's establishing that he, Jesus, is not departing from the Word. He is not straying from the Word that was already written. He's not adding to the law. He's not subtracting from the law. In fact, through what he's teaching here, Jesus is showing that he is submitting himself to it. He is submitting himself to the law. And this is significant because this differentiates him from the religious leaders of that day. Why don't you look at Matthew chapter 23 with me real quick. 
Matthew chapter 23 shows a little um, profile of the people who were teaching the people in this day. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Well, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. By what? By that he means he's the one teaching and proclaiming the law to these people. Therefore, verse 3, Whatever they tell you observe, to observe, that observe and do. Because it's true, right? Moses taught it. This is the law. So you guys need to follow what they say, what they're teaching from Moses' law. But then he adds, but do not do according to their works. For they say, and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. And they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here, Jesus is profiling the religious leaders of the day, the people who have been teaching the people. And he is differentiating themselves from them in Matthew chapter 5 by submitting himself to the law because the religious leaders of that day were using the law to gain respect. They were using the law to better, to better their image, to make people love them to make people respect and honor them. They were using the word of God for personal gain. They were not submitting themselves to the, word of, to the word of God by obeying it, by humbly submitting themselves under the law of Moses. No, they, they had risen up above it. And now the law was serving them. But they were not serving God through the law. Jesus himself, here in five, seven, Matthew 5.17, is submitting himself to the law. And when you think about it, that's a little interesting, <clears throat> because Jesus himself is the one who created the law and revealed it unto men. In John chapter 1, verse 1, which some of us may have memorized, it says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. And he goes on and on. But he's talking about Jesus, the Word. This is another name for Jesus, the Word. And He gave the people, the law. It came from him, from his person. But yet Jesus in this passage is revealing that he is humbling, submitting to the law that he, from the very beginning, gave to men to follow. Though he is the lawgiver and the judge, and no man has the right to ever come against him with any legitimate accusation, 
or with it, even if they had an accusation, they would never have man would never have the power to carry out any judgment against him. Jesus reveals his humility by submitting himself to the law, and not just to the law. Jesus is also Jesus also submits himself to the law to the authority that the law prescribes, the religious leaders. He submitted to them in death. He could have stood up against them in that courtroom when they were condemning him to crucifixion, but yet he did not. He submitted himself to the religious rulers, even though he knew that they were corrupt. Because the law states that you must submit yourself to the priests, to the Levites. They are the teachers. They are the shepherds of Israel. They were poorer shepherds of Israel. But nevertheless, Jesus himself submitted himself to them. And this is significant because if God himself would submit himself to his own word, how much more care should you and I give to taking heed to every word of God? Jesus didn't have to come and obey all these laws. He didn't have to do that, but he he humbly showed us that he is not just somebody who's, who's ready to tell us what to do, but he's also the type of Christ who's going to come and actually do those things that he requires of us, we have, that we have failed to do, but he's going to come and do it perfectly. And if Jesus were to destroy the law and the prophets, listen to this, if he were to destroy the law, if he were to destroy the prophets, then he would be nullifying the need for the Messiah to come. He would be nullifying the need to bring righteousness to the world of sinful men. His birth, death, resurrection, and the nullification of the law and the prophets would be likewise nullifying the redemptive effect of his crucifixion. Because if he did away with it all, then he came and died for nothing. If the righteous requirement of the law were done away with, then there would be no purpose for Christ to atone for our sin. So in the fact that Jesus continued to go and be crucified reveals to us that the righteous requirement of the law was always in effect. It was always in effect. And man's inability to meet it, to satisfy it, is what brought the crucifixion in the first place through the love of God. And in Romans chapter 8, if you want to look there real quick, Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 4. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 4 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In this passage, there's, there's, there's a lot going on in this passage, but Paul is revealing to us the problem. The people... We're looking, you know, just like in that first passage that I read to you, that you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. The people were looking to the law, thinking that the law was going to save them. As long as they did their best, as long as they kept it as best as they could, the law was going to save them. But Jesus says, no, all of that was teaching you about me. It was supposed to be giving you a picture of your need for me and my mercy. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul is telling us about the fact that it's not that the law was broken or that it was imperfect per se. It's more that we were completely incapable of keeping it. We were never going to be perfected by the law. That's why he says in verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law, okay, it showed us what righteousness looks like, how to be perfect. But so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, so how in the world can you and I, who keep breaking the law, be righteous? How in the world can that happen? We keep sinning. We keep doing what, what God tells us not to do. We don't do the things that God does tell us to do. Every day, you could probably look at something in your life and be like, man, I broke God's law. How then can we stand before a righteous, a righteous judge and be counted righteous? But look back in verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... Really, what that's saying is the flesh was too weak to keep it. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. So the reason we can be righteous, even though we've sinned, is because God did it. God got your righteousness for you. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the law is still in effect, people. It's just that we are not saved by keeping it. We are saved from its condemnation by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Because if the law was gone, there would be no sin, right? Nobody would really need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody would need to do it because we'd all be perfect because the law was done away with. There's no more standard of righteousness. There's no more righteous requirement because Jesus did away with it, right? But Jesus is saying that's not why he came. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. Now let's keep talking about this. <clears throat> Over centuries of legal deterioration, the people had been reduced by the religious leaders to following rules and regulations that really did not reveal God to the people. The leaders had begun interposing their own rules. We can see that in Mark chapter 7. If you'd like to look there with me. You didn't know you'd have to do so much work today, did you? Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 6. He, Jesus, answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. 
For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things that you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. These are things that are in the law. In verse 11, But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might receive from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So we see here that the religious people had completely swapped out the need to follow God's law because they had all their own traditions and rules and regulations and standards. They had ways to get out of obeying the law just as long as you kept this law over here that we made up. Perhaps there was some sort of you know, good reasoning for why people had these rules, but they got out, you know, over time at least, they got out of control. And when you look at your own life, how much of your life is determined by what the Word of God says versus what your church says, or what your church leaders say, or what you think should happen. We start justifying ourselves or condemning other people based off of rules and regulations that we set forth, that we make up for ourselves. But I don't want to keep talking about that because that, if the more I talk about this, the more we can stray from this passage in Matthew chapter 5. But the point here is Jesus, when he's teaching the people, he is returning the people to a true, pure rendering of the law. <clears throat> he's going to teach people many things, starting with, if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount here, you'll recognize this. You have heard that it was said, such and such. But I say to you, and then he says what he's going to say. And when he's doing this, it's wrongly taught that he's replacing the law. But what he's really doing is not changing the law, but clearing away the debris from then modern distractions and giving people a clear view of what the law was actually teaching. For instance, he says, you shall, you've heard that it was said, don't kill. But I'm saying to you, if you hate your brother you're guilty of condemnation. Not that he's changing the law or making it harder, but he's getting us to what the law was trying to put within us. Love. The law was trying to get you to love, not hate. It wasn't just a dry rule to not murder people. It was like, no, don't murder people, but rather go love them. The law was always trying to put that in the people, but the people were not getting it. They just treated it as these law, these rigid rules and restrictions, and there was no love. There was no compassion. The people did not serve the poor. They despised the poor. They took advantage of the poor. They didn't kill them, though, so whoop-de-doo, we're keeping the law. <laughs> so when Jesus teaches the people, he's trying to return them to a proper rendering of the law, not replacing it with a new law. We need to understand that. And all of this is to show us that Jesus is not doing away with the law. He's supporting the law. He's submitting himself to the law. I mean, he's the one who made the law in the first place. So a natural question that might come from this. So if Christ didn't do away with the law, 
but rather came to fulfill it, does that mean we still need to keep on with the Jewish festivals? Do we need to hold to all the Sabbaths and keep performing sacrifices? Do we need to bring sheep and slaughter them and sprinkle their blood on the horns of the altar? Do we need to do all of those things? Because Jesus didn't do away with the law, right? So if he didn't do away with it, do we need to keep doing these things? Look at verse 18. In Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He, said, he, he gives us a means by which we can clarify this question. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, so by that he's saying the smallest little grammatical portions of the law, periods and hyphens, will by no means pass from the law. When? Or what? When, till when? Till all is fulfilled. So there are some things in the scriptures that are yet to be fulfilled, but there are many things in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled. Have they not? And I've heard it taught before, well, what part of the Old Testament are we supposed to keep? And I've heard that it was said, well, the portions of the Old Testament that were restated in the New Testament, those are the portions that we're supposed to keep. And that doesn't really capture the scriptural vibe here. It's basically just a shot in the dark to try to explain a hard question. And it's not a true answer. It's not really an answer that's found in Scripture. Nowhere in Scriptures does Paul say, keep the portions of the Old Testament that I'm restating here in my epistles. He doesn't say that. But, Paul, but Jesus here is giving, giving us a means to clarify this question. These things are not going to pass away until I fulfill them. Okay? So, for instance... Some of the law and some of the prophets have already been fulfilled. Are we still looking for a Messiah? Because the Old Testament people were supposed to look for the Messiah. That was part of the law. But we have the Messiah. So we're not still looking for him. That's been fulfilled. He's come. We're not still looking for him. Then you have an issue like, are we supposed to keep celebrating the Passover? Well, look in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. We can see here that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So we see that Christ, in his coming, in his sacrifice for our sins, is, has fulfilled this Old Testament shadow of the Passover. The Old Testament Passover was a shadow of the Christ who had come, shed his blood, cover us with his blood, so that the angel of death would not touch us. We had a picture of it in the Old Testament, starting with the people being redeemed from slavery in Egypt. But all of that in the Old Testament was pointing to the Christ who had come. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He is comparing Jesus Christ to this freedom that the people found from slavery to Egypt. Now, that's a picture of Christ coming and freeing us from our slavery to this world. 
And Christ, as we just read in 1 Corinthians, is called our Passover lamb. A lamb that was sacrificed. The blood put on the mantle posts. We don't have to do that anymore. Because all of that was pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ. And the salvation and the freedom and the redemption that we have in him. Matthew 26:28 says, "This is my blood of the new new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." Do you know when he said that? While sharing a Passover meal. They were having the pass they slaughtered the Passover lamb. They were eating the unleavened bread. And Jesus says, "This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." He is associating them now. Okay, we keep the Passover, but now Jesus is saying, this is my blood that was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's initiating the new covenant where we no longer have to keep the Passover because he is the Passover lamb. So in that, he fulfills a legal obligation to hold the Passover feast. Now, are you in the wrong if you celebrate the Passover? Not necessarily, because you can still do so commemorating Jesus Christ. In a way, when we have communion together, there's a small part of that where we're celebrating the Passover. Only it's the new covenant Passover, not the old covenant Passover. So we can still do it to commemorate the scriptural teaching, but it's no longer a legal requirement for us. We also see in the law that God had set up a priesthood to carry out the law with the people, to teach the law. The people were supposed to submit to the teachings of the priests. They were, the priests were the ones offering the sacrifices. Most of us are familiar with, with that and how that went about. But look at Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 7 say... Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now obviously he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's not talking about a high priest, Caiaphas or or anybody else. He's not talking about the Aaronic priesthood. He's talking about Jesus Christ. In verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, referring to Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed... When he was about to make the tabernacle, he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, talking about Jesus, inasmuch as he, Jesus, is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Here, in this passage, the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, you have the old priesthood, but it was never meant to be the enduring um, priesthood. When Jesus came and offered himself as a sacrifice, as a priest would, he fulfilled the Old Testament need to have a priesthood because he became the eternal priest. We no longer need priests to bring us to God. We no longer need priests to plead on our behalf for our sins. We no longer need priests to offer sacrifices for us, to pray for us. We don't need priests. Why? Because here we see that Jesus replaced the priesthood. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled everything that the priesthood was looking towards. The priesthood was just a shadow, he said, this author says. They serve, in verse 5, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. They were not the real substance. If I put my hand up against the light and there's a shadow that shines on the wall, you can kind of see that it's a hand, but you don't know if I'm white, black, Hispanic. You don't know if this is an old man's hand or a young man's hand. You can't, you can't see how many wrinkles I have on my hand. You just see the basic figure. But Jesus is the actual substance. In him we see the eternal substance of what God always intended for through the shadows in the Old Testament. When we look to the Old Testament, we don't just see little, beautiful, pretty child stories that we learn, you know, moral, moralistic um, behaviors from. Everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of the new covenant, of the Christ who would come. Christ is not, when he came, he did not do away with that. He's fulfilling it, being the actual substance of everything the Old Testament looked for. And he is our priest, so we don't need priests. Because he's the one who is the mediator between us and God. So we don't need somebody else to do that for us. Jesus holds that position. And you have the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament. Just on the next page, Hebrews chapter 9, <clears throat> starting in verse 19, it says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels in the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission meaning the taking away of sin. Skip down to verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. In chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. And then skip down to verse 9. <clears throat> then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, so that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in all of these passages, we see that Jesus Christ 
fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial law in that the Old Testament sacrificial law was an was a image of what Christ would do perfectly. It was an imperfect, incomplete portrayal of what would come later in perfection. And in this case, Jesus not only is the priest offering the sacrifice, fulfilling the priesthood, he is the sacrifice himself. He became the sacrificial lamb who obliterated the need for any other animal to die on behalf of any sinner. Does that make sense? There is no longer any need for, a for an animal to be sacrificed because the sacrifices of those animals were just an anticipation of the perfect sacrifice that would come in the future through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So in that, he fulfills it. There's no longer a need for it, not because he's destroying the law, but because he's fulfilling it. See the difference? He's not replacing the law, he's fulfilling it because the law was always looking for that. The law was always looking for his work. It was always waiting for it. And I just want to spend a few minutes taking you way back into Genesis chapter 15, like I promised before. Genesis chapter 15, if you look at that with me, we'll end with this, talking about this passage. Because this is way back when God makes his original covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven. Count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Abram just said, Okay, I believe you. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. But that's not the end of the story. So let's skip down to verse 9. Well, let's just, let's, I don't want to skip down to verse 9. So verse 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So even amidst his belief, there was still a sense of insecurity, right? Does that resonate with any of you? <laughs> Even amidst a righteous belief, there's still a little bit of insecurity in Abram. So, verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite to the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he, God, said to Abram, No certainly, okay, let your timidity go away, No certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. So this is a prophecy of their captivity in Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. 
and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, which was fulfilled. <clears throat> now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and continues on with those details. Now, why do I read this story? Way back when, this is the covenant that God is making with Abraham, Abram, promising him to fulfill all of his promises to him, to make him a great nation, that he will inherit a land. He also gives a little bit of detail about how this would happen. And then it says, you know, it says in this passage that he slices these animals in half and spreads them and makes a valley in between. Kind of gory. I'm really glad that we don't make promises this way anymore. Because <laughs> um, that, yeah, that would be a really uh, interesting thing for us to be doing. <laughs> um, and from what I've learned is that this is not the only time that that was ever done. I've learned that back in this, back in this day, this was a way that people would make a solid, unchangeable bond with somebody. A promise, a covenant. That they would kill these animals and both of the, both of the people, or if there were multiple parties, the whole, the whole party would walk through these animals symbolizing that if either of us break our promise, we will kill ourselves, we will be killed just the same as these animals. If we break our covenant, destruction be upon whoever breaks the covenant, just like destruction came upon these animals that we just walked through. And as they were walking through these animals, they'd be reminded, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want that to happen to me. I'm going to keep my part of this covenant. But in this passage, it's significant to see God puts Abraham to sleep. Puts him to sleep. Abraham doesn't even get a chance to walk through this with God. God walks through it himself. By himself. And this is significant. Because in this we see, all the way from the very beginning, Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant of God with his people. Because did, did the people of Abraham keep their side of things? Did they walk in obedience with God? Did they follow God? No, they, every generation, nearly every generation, of serving idols and intermarrying with idolaters and disobeying the law and setting up their own rules, disregarding the rules of God. And yeah, they were punished, chastised, because God wanted them to come back. But ultimately, what happened? In this covenant, the people were not utterly destroyed as they, could, they should have been if Abram were to walk through that, that um, valley of death. If Abram walked through that valley of death, he would have been devoting his people to destruction because of their disobedience. Because they broke the covenant. But God put him to sleep. God already knew that the people would not keep the covenant. But God, in his faithfulness, did not want to destroy those people. So he himself walks through by himself taking upon himself the burden of both covenants. God, if he were to break his faithfulness, would die. 
Abraham's people, if they broke the covenant, God would also die. And what happened? Jesus Christ, God incarnate, died for the sins of the people. In accordance with this covenant that God made with Abram thousands of years before. In this, Jesus is fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. The people strayed. But just as the Lord covenanted with Abraham through walking alone through those carcasses, God sacrificed himself because of the sins of the people. This was something that was already set in stone. Back here, when the Bible even says that before the foundations of the world were laid, the plan for Jesus to make atonement for our righteousness was set. God already even knew it before he even created everything. And we're going to have to talk a little bit more about this passage next week, I think. But I want you to see here that Jesus submits himself to the law that he created. He didn't come to destroy it. He came to be everything that the law pointed to. He came to fulfill it. And there are many things in the Old Testament that were already fulfilled. We don't have to keep the sacrifices. We don't have to keep all the festivals. and We don't have to um, have priests coming between us and God. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those things. And because he fulfilled all of those things, we don't have to keep to those things. There are some things that were not necessarily fulfilled, you know, such as, thou shalt not kill, <laughs> don't commit adultery. Those things were not necessarily fulfilled by Jesus' death. However, the righteous requirement of the law was. We're still going to sin. Okay, We're still going to break these moral laws that we are still required to keep. But, he has given us a way to be righteous even in the midst of all of that disobedience. Because he himself, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might be, not just have, but be the righteousness of God in him. So in this message, what's the application? The application is look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That seems pretty broad, but you are all, and I, we are all going through many different things. We have wars within our souls. We have wars in our lives. We have confusion and questions, and we want to know the answers. And I want to tell you, in all things, look to Jesus. You may not have, you may not find the exact answer you're looking for, but just as Abram in Genesis 15, verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't say the, all, having all the answers is the beginning of wisdom. You know? Jesus fulfilled the law. We seek to follow him. We submit ourselves to him. Jesus himself submitted himself to the law, to the word. If anybody was above the law, it was him. But he submitted himself to it so that he could free us from its condemnation. If you have not been freed from condemnation through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, take this opportunity now. 
Okay. Do you have the righteousness of God? The life that you're living, has it obtained for you the righteousness of God? Would you like to have the righteousness of God? Well, then we look to Jesus. We submit ourselves to him and his work on the cross. Fulfilling that righteous requirement, that requirement that says you must be perfect if you're going to enter into the presence of God. You have to be perfect. We can't. We can't be perfect. God already knew that. That's why all of Jewish history was pointing us, readying us for faith in the Messiah so that we could apply this faith of Abraham that says he believed God and counted it to him as righteousness. I believe that Jesus Christ died to forgive my sins. He died being punished for sins that I deserve to be punished for. I believe that. I claim that. I understand that. And I take that. God, would you forgive me for my sins? That my sins may be applied to the cross of Christ. God, would you redeem me and free me from slavery to this earth? An earth that will perish. Everything that's in it. God, will you take me as your own? Bring me into this covenant, this new covenant that you made by shedding your blood for me. Will you wash me with your blood and forgive me of my sins? I urge you, if you have not been cleansed by the work of Jesus Christ, submit yourself to him today. And as we walk in this life, are you still trying to work to get the favor of God? Are you still basing it off of your own things, your own deeds, your own righteousness, just like the Pharisees, just like the religious rulers who are constantly looking at their own forms of righteousness? Or do you look at Jesus' righteousness day by day, finding your sufficiency in Him? Let us be free from the yoke of bondage that is the works of the flesh. And let us find our rest in the Sabbath Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. I pray that your spirit would be blowing in this room, enlightening our eyes to your will for us. Humble us, Lord, before your word. Let us not be above your word, using it to prove our points, to justify our lifestyles. But Lord, let us submit to it. Let it be above us. Christ the word among us, within us. Humble us. May we be poor in spirit so that we can may begin this journey that finds itself in the promise of eternal life. Forgive us for being proud. Forgive us for going our own way. Forgive us for thinking that we're outside of scriptures. Forgive us for trying to establish our own little kingdom here. <clears throat> Give us a heart of submission. Break this hard heart made from tablets of stone. Give us a heart of flesh that is soft. That you will abide in. In Jesus' name, amen.